0: Okay, um, I'm going to try my best to finish chapter 10 today, but I doubt it's going to happen. If we were in the Paul, we'd get it done because everybody's content to sit there for four or five hours. It's not going to happen here. And we've got a meal to eat together and some fellowship to enjoy. But turn in your Bibles to Revelation 10 for our guest. I've been teaching exegetically through this book for quite some time now. I think it's been well, well over a year when I'm in country, and this is message number 66, okay, and so we're just taking our time going through this book, and it often takes us out of the book as we expound upon other things revealed in the Word of God, so I think in our study thus far, we've touched every single book of the Bible except perhaps the Song of Solomon, so I'll find a way to get in that book somehow before we are finished. If you have your outlines, those of you who have been here, we are on the back side of the Revelation 10 and 11 outline, and we are at verse, uh, uh, point C under Roman numeral 1. Okay, We're talking about the testimony of this mighty angel. These two chapters are all about testimony. Okay, In a sense, they're a parenthesis that do not advance the narrative of the book, just like chapter 7, the unveiling of the Jewish witnesses and the Gentile converts as a result of their ministry, and just like we see later in uh, chapter 14 or, or 16 uh, when, when those demonic witnesses go out uh, to gather men to the great battlefield. That's, that's chapter 16. So we're in a parenthesis per se, and the theme again is in the midst of all of God's wrath and judgment and all of these terrible things which include demonic, a, a plague of demonic locusts, a demonic army, and all of these things, God does not leave Himself without witness. And all throughout history, despite man's wickedness, despite his depravity, despite God's judgment, there's always been witness to, or testimony to the truth and an avenue for escape. And so that's the theme uh, of these two chapters. Testimony in the midst of judgment. And this mighty angel was a testimony. We talked about his identity last week, and in the first two verses of this chapter, it's undeniable that this mighty angel is Christ. When we look at his description here, and we compare Scripture with Scripture, this is, the, this is Jesus Christ as He relates to Israel in the time of tribulation, a mighty angel, the angel of the Lord. And when he stands here with one foot on the sea and one foot on the earth, and that little book is open in his hand, that little book is the great seven-sealed scroll, which is the title deed of the earth. And by the time, at the point in the book, that this vision is revealed to John, it's a little book, because all of the scrolls have been opened, and all of the judgments are nearly finished. That title deed of the earth, Christ is the kinsman redeemer. Adam sold his birthright to Satan in the Garden of Eden. Just He despised it just as Esau did with his birthright. But Jesus Christ is the kinsman redeemer. He purchased that right at the cross and here he shows his authority to claim it. And that's what he will do when he returns. He reigns and rules in the hearts of his people today. And that fact guarantees that the day is coming when He will reign and rule physically over this planet and reclaim that title deed that was purchased at the cross. So that's the setting here. We've gone through the first couple of verses. Now I want to look at verse 3. We've considered the testimony of the, of, uh, of, um, the angel. Here the identity Jesus Christ in behalf of His church is the bridegroom. Jesus Christ in behalf of the nation of Israel is the angel of the Lord, a mighty angel, Messiah. Okay. The little book we've talked about in in verse 2. Now let's consider verses 3 and 4. We have seven thunders mentioned here. Let's read this morning. Chapter 10, verses 3 and 4. And this... Angel, it says, cried with a loud voice as when a lion roars. Another uh, clue as to this angel's identity. Back in Revelation uh, chapter 5, I believe it is, um, the only one worthy to open the scroll. John was weeping because no one was found in heaven and earth worthy to open the scroll. And John was told, don't weep. There is one, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah the root of David, and then he saw a lamb in the midst of the throne who took that scroll, and when he opened it, the judgments began. So he have another clear uh, clue here as to the identity of this angel. He cried with a loud voice as when a lion roars, and when he cried, seven thunders uttered their voices. And when the seven thunders had uttered their voices, I was about to write... But I heard a voice from heaven saying unto me, Seal up those things which the seven thunders uttered, and write them not. Okay? So what happened here when this angel with a foot on the land and a foot on the sea showing he had the authority to claim it, cried, it says seven thunders uttered something, and John wanted wanted to write it down, but he was forbidden to do so. Why? Why? Well, the answer is simple. God only reveals to man what man needs to know on a need-to-know basis. Period. God reveals to man what he needs to know on a need-to-know basis. That is the Word of God, my friends. Special revelation from God. What we need to know on a need-to-know basis. God isn't obligated to reveal every detail about everything to us. In fact, we're privileged and it's by His grace alone that He has revealed Himself in His Word. God's Word is what man needs to know for his salvation and for the glory of God. God didn't reveal every detail about every future event, but He revealed enough to us so that we could be sure that this same Jesus who was taken from amongst us will in like manner return again as He was seen gone. With the clouds of heaven. You know, my friends, part of trusting in the Lord, we claim as Christians that we trust the Lord. In fact, biblical faith is trusting the Lord. It's not head knowledge, it's a heart knowledge. Sometimes the greatest distance for someone is the 18 inches from the head to the heart. They can't travel that 18 inches. They can't move from intellectual ascent to heart trust. But part of trusting in the Lord is to trust and wait upon Him even when it comes to not being able to understand or know what is going to happen. That's part of trusting the Lord. Even when we can't understand every detail of His Word, part of trusting Him is accepting that it is the Word of God and believing it and declaring it. It's not our duty to convince or persuade Men. Paul attempted to persuade men and there's certainly nothing wrong with that. And We ought to know how to answer every man that asks a question for the hope that is in us. But it's God's duty to save men. Our duty is to declare the message and to trust the Lord for the results. So I think that's a lesson we can learn here. John hears something and he's told not to write it down. And there's a reason for that. We don't know the reason for it but we can trust the Lord that He knows. Now, we don't know what these seven thunders uttered in that moment, but we do know a few things. We do know a few things from the rest of Scripture. Number one, if you go down to verse 7, it says, But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he shall begin to sound, the mystery of God should be finished as he hath declared to his servants the prophets. What we do know is that the mystery, including what is uttered here by these seven thunders, will be finished. And it will be revealed in the days of the sounding of the seventh trumpet that we'll read about a little bit later um, at the end of chapter 11. So whatever mystery is spoken, it will be finished, it will be completed, and it will be revealed in the days of the sounding of the seventh trumpet. Well, we'll learn later that the seventh trumpet is the seven vile judgments of God. The fifth, the sixth, and the seventh trumpets are called the three woes. Because they go beyond the natural world. The fifth trumpet, the first woe, demonic torment. The sixth trumpet, demonic destruction. And in that, in that rising crescendo of judgment, that seventh trumpet is... The wrath of God at its core. And in those days, this mystery will be revealed. The seven vials we'll see serve to overthrow the kingdom of the beast, whose chief end in that day will be to annihilate Israel and her spiritual seed. So we know these things will be finished, whatever they were that were spoken. We also know something else. John's not the only one in Scripture that heard or was told something, but yet was forbidden to write it down. Who else was in a similar position? Daniel, the book of Daniel. Daniel was also told to seal up certain prophetic truth, even, quote, to the time of the end. Unquote. I want to look at a scene in the book of Daniel because it's eerily similar to what we see here in chapter 10 of Revelation. Turn to the book of Daniel. Daniel chapters 10 through 12 are all one vision. Okay, They're all one vision. And it begins in the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia. Daniel's already had other visions about the end times going back to the days of Nebuchadnezzar and even in the first year of Darius. Okay, So this whole section of Daniel goes together. Okay, Daniel was fasting and praying and it said that a vision came to him. Verse 1 of chapter 10, In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a thing was revealed unto Daniel whose name was called Beltshazzar, and the thing was true, but the time appointed was long. It was true, but it wouldn't be fulfilled for a long, long time. Or it covered a long period of time, we'll see. And he understood the thing and had understanding of the vision. And then Daniel mentioned that he was mourning for three full weeks. And then in the four and twentieth day of the first month, he was on the riverside. He was down by the river Tigris or hidikel That's another one of those rivers that had its source in the Garden of Eden, just like the Euphrates that we talked about before. But it says in verse 5, look at this. Then I lifted up mine eyes and looked, and behold, a certain man clothed in linen, whose loins were girded with fine gold of Uphaz. His body was also like the barrel, and his face as the appearance of lightning. Remember the uh, chapter 10 of Revelation, the appearance of the sun. The appearance of lightning, and His eyes as lamps of fire. Revelation 1, John's vision of Jesus Christ, His eyes as flaming fire. And His arms and His feet like the color to polish brass. Revelation chapter 1, John's vision of Jesus Christ, His feet unto fine brass. His feet burned as a furnace. In chapter 10, pillars of fire of Revelation. And the voice of His words like the voice of a multitude. And I alone, Daniel, saw the vision, for the men that were with me saw not the vision, but a great quaking fell upon them so that they fled to hide themselves. Therefore I was left alone and saw this great vision, and there remained no strength in me. For my comeliness was turned in me into corruption, and I retained no strength. Now jump over to chapter 12, because then an angel comes to Daniel the one that had been delayed because he was fighting with the prince of Persia, he comes and explains all of these things to Daniel and he traces the history of Jewish persecution down through Persia and Greece all the way to the days of a a wicked king, Antiochus Epiphanes, who would be a type of Antichrist. And then he telescopes to the end, to the days of Antichrist, and covers all of these things. Then we get to chapter 12 when it's the end of time and Israel is brought to her end and then Michael the great prince stands up and Israel is delivered. Look at verse 7 of chapter 12. And I heard the man clothed in linen. This is the same man Daniel saw at the beginning of chapter 10. Which was upon the waters of the river when he held up his hand right and left hand unto heaven, and swear by Him that liveth forever and ever that it shall be for a time, times, and a half when He shall have accomplished to scatter the power of the holy people, all these things shall be finished. And I heard, but I understood not. Then said I, O my Lord, what shall the end of these things be? And He said, Go thy way, Daniel, for the words are closed up and sealed Till the time of the end. What does the angel do in chapter 10 with his foot on the hand, I mean his foot on the land and his foot on the sea? It says he lifted up his he lifts up his hands and swears by him that lives forever and ever. And then seven thunders utter their voices, and it's not revealed what they say. Here, what Daniel sees is this this angel that or this, this, this one like the Son of Man who looks very much like what's described in Revelation twice when we know it's Christ, stand on the river and likewise swear to heaven. And what he says is that it, what is it? Read chapters 10 through 12. It's all about the persecution of Israel. And then it telescopes to the last days describing Antichrist. It, the scattering of the holy people, will be for a time, a time's, and a half what is a time times and a half a time one year times two years a half three-and-a-half and And that agrees with what's declared elsewhere in scripture about the time of Jacob's trouble three-and-a-half years forty two months as it says there in Revelation okay so we have a similar scene there in Daniel and in the context of that scene Daniel wanted to know what is the end? What's going to happen there at the end? And he was told to seal it up and close up the words. What is sealed up in Daniel 12, is this related to what is ordered in Revelation 10 that is sealed up? I believe so. I believe the end of the matter is not described in detail. How exactly? We know a lot of the details about what the battle of Armageddon will look like. We know about Christ coming back in Revelation 19 and we know that men's faces will literally melt off, the skin will melt off and the eyeballs will fall out of the sockets. That's there in the book of Zechariah chapter 14. But the end of it, Christ taking the kingdom and setting it up and Israel actually turning to Messiah and being restored in that day as a nation, it's not been revealed exactly what that looks like. It's been sealed up until the time of the end. We know from Daniel that there will be a time, times and a half to scatter the holy people, that is the, the Jews, to judge them unto awakening. In chapter 10 of Daniel, verse 14, we this Prince, I mean, this angel comes to Daniel after he sees this man on the river and tells Daniel, I am come to make thee understand what shall befall thy people in the latter days. So that angel was sent to tell him what's going to happen to the people of Israel in the latter days. For yet the vision is for many days. It's going to be a long time before it concludes itself. And so it's all kind of related to Israel there in Daniel chapter 10, 11, and 12. And we are in Revelation 10, Christ presented as a mighty angel, like he was in the Old Testament. The angel of the Lord is in reference to Israel. And I think these things have to do with what is going to happen in terms of the restoration of the nation. Now, the time of the end, I find it interesting is mentioned in Daniel. It's described in Revelation. But everything Daniel's seeing here is the time of the end. And we're told what that looks like in Daniel um, chapter 12. We're told. It says, verse 4 of chapter 12, "...but thou, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book, even to the time of the end." And then you see that little colon there. What follows defines what has just been said. What is the time of the end? What will it look like? It says in verse 4, "...many shall run to and fro, and knowledge will be increased." What that's telling us is that men will run to and fro all over the earth. Travel everywhere. Men going back and forth. Nobody sitting still. And knowledge, that word there in the Hebrew, conveys information. Not necessarily wisdom or knowledge applied, but just information will be increased. That is the time of the end described. Do we live in a day when men run to and fro in ways they've never done before? Absolutely. I can be sitting in Tel Aviv in less than 24 hours. In fact, there's very few places in this world that I couldn't get to in less than a couple of days. Men are flying. The airports are crowded. People going back and forth. Umpteen number of flights. People get scared to fly fly in an airplane. Some of you are in here. Okay? When you consider the number of flights that go out every day compared to the number of crashes statistically, you're in a lot more danger to die on your way to church this morning than you are in an airplane. I think what makes us scared is we think we have lost any semblance of control in an airplane that we think we have in a car. The reality is none of us have any control. Only God has control. But we live in a day where men run to and fro, can't even sit still. That's America today. And information overload, my friends, with all the information we have. We have access to it with the click of a mouse. Men are ignorant. I can't, I can't imagine. You know, I was showing these guys in my office last night this original page I have from a first edition printing of the King James Bible in 1611. And then I showed them this... Um, 400 anniversary edition of the King James Bible, it was a remake, okay? They remade it with the exact dimensions and the weight and all of the things that it would have been made in 1611. They remade it in 2011. And I was showing them how big that Bible is and how heavy it was. You know, that was in a day when most Christian people didn't have a personal copy of the Scriptures, in fact, if you wanted to study them, you'd have to go up to the church where oftentimes in England the Bibles were chained to the pulpits and look at it for yourself. In fact, there are stories of men in England during the reign of Bloody Mary who were martyred because they were caught in the church reading the Bibles that had been chained to the pulpits. Okay, there are stories about that in Fox's Book of Martyrs. So these were huge Bibles that you didn't just carry around and study. They're, they were very expensive to print. They may have, there may have been one in a church and that was your source for the Word of God. And yet men knew it. Valued it. Valued it enough to sneak in there and study it at night and put their lives at risk. Now we live in a day and time where you can find umpteen number of translations of the Bible with the click of a mouse. Commentaries, books, everything at your fingertips And yet there's an ignorance of the Bible in the churches that's profound, that's astounding. It's a sign, in my opinion, that we're in the time of the end. Many running to and fro. Information increased. And when information is increased, my friends, men don't become smarter. They become lazy and indifferent. These are things we know. We may not know what the seven thunders sounded, but we know these things. Something else I found interesting, and again, this causes us to step outside the book of Revelation. John hears seven thunders speak from heaven. Okay? He's obviously been transported in this vision back to earth, and he sees this mighty angel with a foot on the sea, a foot on the land, pledging to heaven that there'll be time no longer. And so John's been transported in this vision back to Earth, but then he hears seven thunders utter something from heaven that he's not allowed to write down. Did you know that how many times did a voice from heaven speak concerning Christ when he walked this earth in the gospels? Anybody know? Okay, three. I hear three. Three is right. Good job, Jason. When was it? His baptism? His transfiguration? Actually, well, that was the angel speaking when he went up to heaven. The angel was on earth. But there was a third time. It's in the book of John. It's after he's rode into Jerusalem on the donkey. And there's Greeks that want to come see Christ. Gentiles. And then Jesus is preaching there to the people. And there's a third time. Something, a, a voice speaks from heaven. But let's look at this for a moment. A voice from heaven spoke concerning Christ three times in the Gospels. First, it was at Christ's baptism. Okay, Let's turn to Matthew chapter 3. And while you're doing that, I am going to check real quick and make sure I have not made a mistake. Um, I don't believe a voice spoke from heaven at the ascension. I believe uh, two men, there were two men standing there in Acts chapter 1 that spoke. Um, I believe those two men were Moses and Elijah, but that's another thing to consider. And I'm going to look real quick at the book of Luke while y'all are turning to Matthew 3. Uh, yeah, okay, those, those were two men standing uh, that had come down from heaven. So the, the voice didn't actually speak, but... You made me think there, Jason. Thank you for that. I don't like to misspeak. Matthew chapter three, verses thirteen through seventeen. Brother Sean, will you read that for us this morning? Matthew three thirteen through seventeen. Thirteen. Then cometh Jesus from Galilee to Jordan unto John to be baptized of him. But John forbade him, saying, "I have need to be baptized of thee, and comest thou to me?" And Jesus answering said unto him, Suffer to be so now, for thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he offered him. And Jesus said when he was baptized, uh, went up straightway out of the water, and lo, the heavens were opened unto him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and light, uh, lighting upon him. And lo, a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Okay, at Jesus' baptism, there were people gathered there. There were many that came out when John was baptizing who, was, who were curious. They didn't come to be baptized. They want to see what is going on. And we know the Pharisees were even there. They didn't come to be baptized. They come to rebuke Him and to mock Him like people do for street preachers today a lot of times. But there were people there. And in the presence of the people, this voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. We know in John chapter 1, John himself, John the Baptist, makes a few statements. In verse 31 he says, I knew Him not. John didn't know exactly which one was Jesus when He came. But that He should be made manifest to Israel, therefore I come baptizing with water. And then in verse 34 he says, And I saw Him and bear record that this is the Son of God. John was told that on whom he saw the Spirit descending, that that is the one that baptizes with the Holy Ghost. No question. And so John said, I saw and bear record that this is the Son of God. So what happened at the baptism confirmed to John the Baptist that Jesus was the Son of God. Okay? So, Jesus at the baptism, is presented in public as the Son of God. And to Israel, the Messiah. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And so that voice identified Messiah not just as one born of the Son of David, but the Son of God Himself. Christ's transfiguration. Turn to Matthew 17. He goes up on a high mountain. Now when Ricky and I go to Israel uh, next month, Mount Tabor, it's a hill. It's like a baker's mountain rising out of the valley of Megiddo. We're going to try to climb it. And traditionally, you know, it's said that Mount Tabor is where Jesus was transfigured. But it says in the Gospels that they went up to a high mountain. And just north of Mount Tabor, if you look to the north up towards Syria and Lebanon, is Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon is snow-capped most of the year. You can't climb up there because the borders, I believe, of Syria, Lebanon, and Egypt come together up there and those countries aren't exactly friends or whatever. But it makes sense to me that a very high mountain is not Mount Tabor, Mount Baker's, I mean, uh, Baker's Mountain style, but definitely a high mountain. So these guys climbed in that day. A lot of the Catholic sites are not authentic, by the way, so you know, people going there for superstitious reasons aren't even getting anything out of it because it's not even the right place. You know, the Church of the Holy Sepulcher where Jesus was the site of His burial and His crucifixion was inside the walls of Jerusalem in the days of Christ. The Bible says He was taken outside the city. And so it'll be interesting to see all of the superstition and things there that is so typical of man-made religion. There's no power in the place, but there's power in the person, by the way. And so many fail to see that. But look at Matthew chapter 17. And after six days, Jesus taketh Peter, James, and John, his brother, and bringeth them up into a high mountain apart. Mount Tabor is not high, my friends. Mount Mount Hermon is. And was transfigured before them, and his face did shine as the sun. Just like John sees in Revelation. And his raiment was white as the light. Just what John sees in Revelation 1. And behold, there appeared unto them Moses and Elias talking with him. Now, do you understand when John sees Jesus in Revelation 1, what he sees, he's not seen for the first time. It's the second time he's seen this. Okay? Just, just a side note. And... Then answered Peter and said unto Jesus, Lord, is it good for us to be here? If Thou wilt, let us make here three tabernacles, one for thee, one for Moses, and one for Elias. And while he yet spake, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And behold, a voice came out of the cloud and said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye Him! And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their face and were sore afraid. This is My beloved Son, hear ye Him. At the baptism, Jesus is confirmed to the crowd to be the Son of God from heaven. Here He is confirmed to three of His closest earthly friends to be the Messiah, the King of Israel. Look at Luke 9 for a moment. How do we know this reference is Jesus as Messiah, King of Israel? In Luke's record of the transfiguration, we have an interesting statement that Jesus makes right before this incident is recorded. Jesus said in Luke 9, 27, But I tell you of a truth, He is speaking to the people, there be some standing here which shall not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. A lot of people have looked at that and said, Jesus is mistaken. All those people standing there are dead. The kingdom of God never came. He went back to heaven and the Romans destroyed Jerusalem. Well, maybe the kingdom of God is not have anything to do with Israel. Maybe it's just the church and Roman Catholicism conquering the world and then you get in all kinds of crazy interpretations. But it says... Some will not taste death till they see the kingdom of God. Look what happens right after this. And it came to pass about eight days after these sayings, he took Peter, James, and John and went up into a mountain to pray. And as he prayed, the fashion of his countenance was altered and his raiment was white and glistening. And behold, there talked with him two men which were Moses and Elias who appeared in glory and spake of his decease which he should accomplish at Jerusalem. So this tells us what they were talking about what they were talking about is what the Jews failed to comprehend is that Messiah must first suffer and be rejected of His own and then rise again. And then the kingdom would come in the hearts of His people in the church age, but physically again at the end of time when Israel would awaken. Okay? So, what Jesus said was true. There were some standing there who would not taste death till they saw the kingdom of God. What... Peter, James, and John saw was the kingdom of God. They saw Jesus Christ as the King of Israel, talking with two of Israel's greatest prophets and discussing what many in Israel who were looking for a kingdom could not understand, that Messiah must suffer first. Now, if we go to 2 Peter, Peter reflects on this incident here. Peter reflects on what happened that day in that mountain when he heard a voice from heaven confirming Jesus to be the Messiah, the King of Israel, who must first suffer and be rejected. Of course, Jesus expounds on that in Acts chapter 1 when the disciples say, Are you going at this time to restore the kingdom of Israel? So they expected it. Jesus said, it's not for you to know the times and the seasons which the Father has put in his purpose. You're going to be my witnesses first and go to the ends of the world. But look at what Peter has to say, referring to 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 21. Let's see here. Brother Ricky, would you read that for us this morning? 2 Peter 1, 16 through 21. love his son, in whom I am well pleased, and this voice which came from heaven we heard when we were with him in the holy mount. We have also a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto you do well that you take heed, as unto a light that shineth in a dark place, until the day dawn and the day star rise in your hearts, knowing this first that no prophecy of the scriptures of any private interpretation the prophecy came not in old time, but by the will of man. But holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Peter authenticates the authority and trustworthiness of Scripture in view of his eyewitness experience on the Mount of Transfiguration. Notice that Peter, when speaking of that experience, says we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Majesty belongs to a king. Majesty is the kingdom of God. Jesus said, some standing here will not die till they see the kingdom of God. Peter, James, and John saw it there on the mountain. They died later. So that was a true statement. Jesus often spoke things only understood by those that feared Him and followed Him, and they were purposely spoken to cause those that rejected Him to stumble. When Jesus says destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. He was talking about his body, but he didn't feel the need to explain to those who mocked him that he wasn't talking about the temple, and they went on believing he was talking about the physical temple there. And he just allowed them to continue in that deception because their hearts were not right. Sometimes the Word of God is meant to cause others to stumble. Don't feel the need to explain every detail of every truth when men are mocking the Word of God. Just declare it. Just declare it. But these were eyewitnesses of His Majesty and He talks about how they heard this voice from Heaven. Verse 19 is key and this is really a different subject. But look at this. But we have a more sure word of prophecy. Peter saw Jesus in His Majesty. He saw it with his own eyes but he says that the Word of God is even more sure than that experience. And then that's when we get that great statement about no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. No matter what I say here as I'm teaching Revelation, no Scripture is of any private interpretation. And I pray, God, that nothing I have spoken is a private interpretation. I desire to let Scripture compare with Scripture. I don't claim to be necessarily right because the fine details of prophecy are hard to comprehend. It was hard for Daniel. It was hard to John. But I think it's good to study them. We need to be careful about having dogmatic positions. But no prophecy is of any private interpretation. The prophecy came not in the old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. When someone tells you that the Bible was just written by men, they're speaking a filthy lie. Holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. In fact, I I mentioned that verse in Daniel a couple weeks ago when what was about to be told to Daniel, it wasn't even told to him yet. So he hadn't even begun to write it down. What was about to be told was described as the Scripture of truth. It had already been written down in heaven. What was given to these men didn't become Scripture when it was given. It was already there forever, O Lord. Thy Word is established in heaven. Not just future, but past. God's Word is not the writings of men. It's the Word of God. I think it's a dangerous thing as a Christian to elevate the red letters in the Gospels over the rest of the New Testament. Well, I'm going to follow the words of Jesus. And a lot of people get into the Sermon on the mountain, they start miss. they throw out the rest of the New Testament, and they fall into all kinds of dangerous interpretations. That's why you've got false teachers down in Wells, Texas describing salvation in a way that's not described by the Scriptures, because they elevate certain parts of Scripture over others and don't let Scripture interpret Scripture. That's dangerous. Listen, my friends, Paul may have written 1 Corinthians, but every word of that book was the words of Jesus, just like the words of Jesus in John chapter 3. Because he's the author. He's the living Word. The written Word of God, the living Word of God, not a whole lot of difference, really. We can trust the Word of God. It's not written by men. It was given by the Holy Ghost. But all of this is tied to Christ's transfiguration, an experience whereby three of Jesus' closest friends heard a declaration from heaven concerning His place and position as Messiah, King of Israel. But even Peter elevates the Word over experience. Don't judge truth by your experience, people. Judge it by the Word of God and faith in what God has revealed. There's a third time a voice came from heaven to describe, or, or speaking concerning Jesus and who He was. And this was in John 12. Let's go there for a moment. See guys, I get distracted from Revelation and we don't go very far. That's why this is message 66 or 67 or something. But the Word is so rich and deep, I hate not to, to cover these things. John chapter 12. We have an interesting story here. Jesus has already come into Jerusalem. Um, it's here at the last week of His life. And... um. He has already come in on a donkey in fulfillment of prophecy to the cries of Hosanna. Okay, So the 69 weeks of Daniel have ended. Messiah the Prince came into Jerusalem. He was recognized as King. Those 69 weeks ended and we entered that gap between the 69th and the 70th week. But it says that in those days as the Pharisees were plotting to kill Him in verse 20 it says that there were certain Greeks among them, that is Gentiles, that came up to worship at the feast. So there were Gentiles that came to worship and were following the God of Israel. And these came to Philip and said, we want to see Jesus. So Philip came and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip told Jesus. And this was Jesus' answer in verse 23. Jesus answered them saying, the hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth forever. But, uh, and uh, die and die it abideth alone, but if it die, it shall bring forth much fruit. So this was in... Jesus makes this statement about a corn of wheat needing to die, so much fruit would be bring, be brought forth. This was in reference to Gentiles seeking to meet Him. So this statement is tied to Christ's relationship with the Gentiles. A corn of wheat would fall to the ground, it would die, and it would bring forth much fruit. Not just Jews, but Gentiles. The church. He that loveth his life shall lose it, and he that hateth his life in this world shall keep it unto life eternal. If any man serve me, let him follow me. And where I am, there also shall my servant be. If any man serve me, him will my Father honor. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this cause came I unto this hour. Father, glorify thy name. Then came there a voice from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and I will glorify it again. The people, therefore, that stood by and heard it said that it just thundered. And others said an angel spoke to him. Jesus answered and said, This voice came not because of me, but for your sakes. This is the crowd. This isn't the disciples. This isn't the Pharisees. It's the crowd. Now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. And if I be lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men unto me. This he said signifying what death he shall die. And then the crowd questions Him because they don't understand. What do you mean the Bible says Messiah lives forever? What do you mean He'll die? No, they didn't understand the two comings of Christ even though it's right there in the Torah. While Christ was preaching to the people in Jerusalem, a voice from heaven said in response to Jesus' prayer, I have glorified My name and I will glorify it again. Well, what does this mean? What is this a reference to? I believe it's a reference to Jesus as the Messiah, the kinsman-redeemer to the Jews and Gentiles gathered in Jerusalem. It's a reference to Jesus' role as the earth's kinsman-redeemer. The one who would glorify God in the purchase of the title deed. Verse 24, He talks about that purchase, a corn of wheat falling to the ground and bearing fruit... And then glorified in the repossession, which is talked about in 31 and 32, the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. Look, when Jesus purchased that title deed at the cross, Satan was cast out. That ensured that Jesus, no matter how many years have gone by, the purchase ensured that he would come to claim it. It's already his. The prince of this world has abided for 2,000 years. Accusing the brethren, deceiving and being deceived, the prince of the power of this air, the God of this world, but he was cast out at the cross. And his casting out at the cross ensures that he will be cast out of heaven one day, as Revelation 12 says. That didn't happen in the past, because in Revelation 12, when the dragon is cast out of heaven, he's described as the accuser of the brethren who accused them day and night. That word brethren there is a reference to the church. There was no New Testament church at the cross. That didn't start until Pentecost. And besides, it says, when the Satan is cast out woe unto the earth, for now he's really ticked off. And that's when he goes after Israel. But the judgment came at the cross, and then Jesus said, if I be lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to Myself. That's not Jesus saying he will save all men, as people claim. If we understand what is being declared about Christ and the fact that the Gentiles are in this conversation, we see that as kinsman redeemer, he will draw all men to himself. himself. What does that mean? He will draw men to himself for salvation and he will draw others to himself for judgment and condemnation. Because he's the earth's kinsman redeemer, and he has the authority to save and to judge all men. That's what it means. You can't escape God. You can't escape Christ the King. You can't overthrow him. You can't get in the way. He will draw. Because he was lifted up, he has drawn all men to himself. And there's a day when men will be drawn unto glorification and salvation in the kingdom, both Jew and Gentile. And there's a day when men will be drawn, both Jew and Gentile, unto judgment and eternal damnation by the one who has the authority. What's sad though is that these things were declared by God in the presence of the crowd. God, whom the men there claimed to worship, declared that in Jesus His name was already glorified and it would be glorified again. Reference, I believe, to two events, two comings. It was glorified there in Christ. It will be again when He comes back. But yet the people there, despite the clear articulation of this voice, some people wrote it off and said it's just thunder. Some people said, "Oh, it's just an angel and didn't consider... The magnitude of the words being spoken, they were still too blind to comprehend. Had no excuse for even a voice spoke from heaven. No excuse. Jesus said in ch- chapter 12, verse 30, there, I-, I found this another interesting statement. He said, These things were not spoken for my sake. This voice from heaven didn't come down for my sake, it was for your sakes. Jesus said a lot of things when he was preaching that are hard to be understood or, or, or things that men look at and say, well, Jesus wasn't God, He didn't claim to be God. But Jesus tells us why in His humanity He often said many things. It wasn't said for His sake, it was said for, His, for, for ours. Flip back to the chapter preceding John 11, 41 and 42. A lot of things Jesus said in His humanity don't detract from His deity. They were said for our sakes. This was at the tomb of Lazarus. Jesus took away the stone from the place where the dead was laid and Jesus lifted up His eyes and said, Father, I thank Thee that Thou hast heard me. I knew that Thou hearest me always, but because of the people which stand by, I said it, that they may believe that Thou hast sent me. Jesus knew God heard Him. He was God. But He said what He said for the people's sake. That's That's the reason why Jesus in His humanity said many things. For the sake of the people. Look at another thing Jesus said that lots of the Muslims like to latch on to. Lots of the Mormons... Lots of the Jehovah's Witnesses like to latch on to to try to say that Jesus is not the Son of God. He's not God in the flesh despite the clear testimony of Scripture elsewhere. John 14, 28. He is talking to His disciples. And what He says here in verse 28 is for their sakes, not for His. You have heard how I said unto you, I go away and come again unto you. If you loved Me, you would rejoice Because I said, I go unto my Father. Now this is in the context of His promise of the Holy Spirit. For my Father is greater than I. Jesus in His humanity was speaking to His disciples about the importance of Him returning to heaven so that they could go forth and commune with the Father through the Holy Spirit. Jesus wasn't claiming that God was greater in terms of His deity. Jesus the man was claiming that what God would do through the Holy Spirit is greater than what Jesus in His humanity was doing as He walked the earth in a specific time in a specific place, which was Israel. But when Jesus returned to heaven, the Holy Spirit came into the hearts of all believers, and they didn't stick around in Jerusalem. God, dwelling His believers, went to the ends of the earth to declare the gospel. This statement here was for the sake of the disciples to see the importance of Jesus returning to heaven so that the Holy Spirit could indwell them and they could go out and take this message to the ends of the earth. It has nothing to do with the deity of Jesus. It was spoken for the sake of the disciples. Just like Jesus said at Lazarus' tomb, I didn't speak this because I didn't think God would hear me. I know He hears me. But I spoke it for your sakes. What was spoken there... Uh, in John 12, when the voice came from heaven, was spoken for the people's sake, not for Jesus' sake. We would do well to remember that when we come across things like that. And the next time a Muslim says, well here, Jesus said, my Father is greater than I. Now you can explain to Him why that has nothing to do with the deity of Christ. And then take Him over to 1 Timothy 3.15. God was manifest in the flesh. Take Him over to... Um, John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Take him where Thomas bows down to Jesus and says, My Lord and my God, when he sees him. Take him to the Old Testament where Messiah is called God. No one, anybody that claims to be a Jew and to believe the Old Testament, has no excuse for not believing that Messiah would be God. I'm sorry, there's no excuse, it's there but they're blinded. It's judgment. Announced in Isaiah 6. That judgment was in Jesus' day because He referred to it and it was in Paul's day because He referred to it. It's today. But yet God still has a remnant. Whatever was uttered by the seven thunders there in Revelation 10 was important enough that John attempted to immediately write it down. It was tied, obviously, to the mighty angel And based upon these other instances of a voice from heaven speaking concerning Christ, I'm guessing that whatever was spoken probably had something to do with Christ's identity and His authority as earth's kinsman, redeemer, and Messiah of Israel. That's my guess. Because that's what the nature of the other voices from heaven in Scripture referred to. And... These clues in Revelation 10 indicate that this mighty angel is Christ as He relates to the earth as kinsman, Redeemer, and Israel as Messiah. So whatever was spoken there probably has something to do with His identity as authority and it concerned how He would actually bring an end to Israel's scattering and finish the mystery of God. Because that's what Daniel was told not to write down what exactly the end of the matter would be regarding the scattering of Israel. Heaven's declaration here in Revelation 10 of who Jesus is and what exactly He is going to do, not just at the battle of Armageddon where we know many details, but at the establishment of His kingdom. Not a suffering servant. Not meek and mild Jesus as came the first time, but a conquering King. If we go to Revelation chapter 12, verse 5, the man-child who is Jesus, we're in this parenthesis about the seven personages, the major characters that are acting in this saga. The man-child was to rule all nations, with a rod of iron. That's Christ as King. A rod of iron. Chapter 19 of Revelation, when He comes back, when He comes back, in verse 15, out of His mouth goeth a sharp sword, and with it He should smite the nations, and He shall rule them with a rod of iron. Not a suffering servant, but a conquering king. Remember back in the letters to the seven churches, actual churches that existed in John's day, types of churches that have existed at all times in the church age, and a prophetic foreview of the church age, that gap between Daniel's 69th and 70th week. Something said concerning this rod of iron in chapter 2, To the message at the church of Thyatira, which was one of the most wicked of the seven churches, second only to Laodicea, but yet God still had a remnant there. God still had a remnant. It says, He that overcometh and keepeth my works unto the end, to him will I give power over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. Not only will Christ rule with a rod of iron, but so will His ambassadors. And my friends, His ambassadors are the church. They will rule and reign with Him. Not just ethereally on some cloud in heaven, but in a kingdom here on earth and throughout all eternity. So whatever is spoken here has to do, I believe, with the authority, the identity of the King. And what John sees pledging to heaven with a little book is, I believe, the King. Described as a mighty angel because at this point in the book of Revelation, what happens mainly concerns Israel. And the proof of that is in chapter 11 when John is told to measure the temple and he's told about Israel being scattered and he's told about those two special street preachers and all of these things. In the Old Testament, Jesus was the angel of the Lord, pre-incarnation. I'm going to end here today. I'm obviously not going to finish. This is the way it's been, but praise God. Let's just read for a moment the next two verses. So we've talked about the angel himself, his identity, the little book, the seven thunders. Let's, let's conclude here with a word about the mystery of God. And the angel which I saw stand upon the sea and upon the earth lifted up his hand to heaven just like what the man in Daniel did on the river Tigris. And he sware by him that liveth forever and ever, who created heaven and the earth and the things that therein are, and the earth and the things that therein are, and the sea and the things which are therein, that there should be time no longer. But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he shall begin to sound, the mystery of God should be finished." As he hath declared to his servants, the prophets. Now, my friends, the voice of the seven thunders concerning the mighty angel was sealed up. John wasn't able to reveal it. But what the voice and the words of the mighty angel are revealed. And what are revealed is that there will be time no longer. No more delay. No more delay. It's done. There's coming a day when it's done. There's no more delay. God's long-suffering to us word, not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. There's coming a point in time when that's over. It's done. No more delay. In fact, that phrase there, time no longer, is talking about delay. What happens after this is going to happen very quickly. We often think of revelation spread over all of this time, or we're thinking all over seven years and all of this. But these judgments begin to speed up. And we're not talking about years anymore with the seventh trumpet. We're talking about months at most, and probably more like days. This angel stood on the sea and the land as a symbol of his authority to claim them. He lifted up his hand to heaven, which is the sign of a a pledge. In the book of Genesis, Abraham lifted his hand before the king of Sodom, pledging that he would not take anything from him after he and his servants rescued those kings. And... Abraham made a pledge, I'm not going to take anything from you because I don't want you claiming that you made me powerful. I'll let God get the credit. So this was a pledge that was being made here to heaven. No more delay. Daniel 12 has already told us that the time of Israel's scattering is limited. It's limited! A time, times and a half. The great tribulation from the breaking of the treaty when Antichrist betrays Israel, who they think is their Messiah, until the return of Christ, the true Messiah, is three and a half years. The midst of the week, according to Daniel, his 70th week, a limited amount of time. Here in Revelation 10, 6, that time is up. No more delay. In Christ, the kinsman redeemer, actually taking formal possession of the earth and the sea and sitting on the throne of Israel. It is the end of God's long-suffering to usward. Praise God we're not in the end of that now, and He's still saving men. And we'll continue to save men. But there's a, there's a time when that ends. no more delay when the seventh trumpet sounds, which we read about at the end of chapter 11. What happens, happens very quickly. Very, very quickly. The seventh trumpet is the seven vile judgments. And in terms of chronology or advancing the narrative... We're at the end, friends. Maybe months, days. In a matter of months or days, the mystery of God will be finished. What does that mean? It means unveiled. The same mystery declared throughout the ages by the authors of Scripture will be finished. That means it will no longer be a mystery. It will be unveiled. Now, this necessitates a discussion on the word mystery. Because that word mystery, from the Greek musterion, I don't like pronouncing Greek words, but it's so close to our English word I'll say it, is never in the Old Testament. It's only found in the New Testament. And it's found 28 different times. And we're going to talk a little bit about what is a mystery in the New Testament. And the great mystery of God which is finished. What is one of the great mysteries of God? Job wrestled with it. Why do the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer? Why is there evil? Why would a benevolent God create evil? Why would a benevolent God allow sin and then require His Son to be sacrificed? Couldn't He have just made us all righteous? There must be no God. We hear these foolish rantings at college campuses all the time. But that mystery that you might not can understand right now, there's coming a day when it will be finished. It will be unveiled. And the answer will necessitate a response, just like Job's response. What what was Job's response when God finally spoke? He said, "I, I put my hand over my mouth. The Bible says in Romans that every mouth will be stopped in the day of judgment. In the book of Jude, it says that God is going to require men to give an account. Well, Jesus said God would require men to give an account for every word they speak, even the idle words. But it says in the book of Jude that when Jesus returns, He will stop the mouths of everyone that has spoken against Him. In fact, I'll... Read that verse, because it's amazing. Jude is quoting Enoch, the seventh from Adam. The fact that Jude calls Enoch the seventh from Adam tells us there were not large gaps in the genealogy that people try to say to accommodate for an evolutionary time frame, because Enoch was the seventh from Adam, according to the biblical genealogy. And John is—I mean Jude is quoting Enoch. This must have been revealed by God. That doesn't mean the book of Enoch is inspired Scripture. The book of Enoch wasn't written by Enoch. It's a fantasy fairy tale that contradicts Scripture numerous times. But what is spoken of here doesn't contradict Scripture. Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of His saints to execute judgment upon all and to convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed and of all their hard speeches. In other words, their mocking comments which ungodly sinners have spoken against Him. All of these things that have been spoken against Christ because men can't understand the mystery, they will be convinced otherwise because the mystery will be finished. So we're going to get into that next time when I return. It's not exactly the best stopping place, but you know, the Lord is sovereign. He's in control. I had to say that word, brother. Sovereign. Sovereign, 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 sovereign. That's six times. (laughs) Praise God. (laughs) But I would encourage you to just do a study while I'm gone. Just look up that word mystery in the New Testament. And there's various mysteries spoken of, and it's all part of the mystery of God. And remember this. A mystery, one aspect of that, I believe, is something that is veiled in the Old Testament. doesn't mean it's not there. It's there. But it's veiled in the Old, declared in the New. A mystery is known to those on the inside, but hidden to those who are without. I have heard this said so many times it makes me want to vomit. Why did Jesus speak in parables? He spoke in parables so the people would understand the great truths of God. That's not why Jesus spoke in parables. He told the disciples in Mark 4, I'm speaking in parables because it's only given to you to understand the mysteries, but I speak to them in parables so that they'll stumble and fall. Isaiah chapter 6. The parables were spoken to confuse those that had rejected God in their spirit. And Jesus quoted the judgment of God in Isaiah 6, that hearing they would not hear, seeing they would not see, they would not understand because of their rejection of God. That's not why parables were spoken. But the mysteries of God, those spoken in parables, were given to those that feared Him. Those on the inside. The secrets of the Lord, it says in the book of um, Psalms, are with those that fear Him. A mystery is also a truth that cannot be comprehended by experience it can't be comprehended by trial and error or through testing or by h- any human reason or philosophy, but only by the special revelation of God. The Word of God and the mis- ministry of the Holy Spirit are the unveiling of the mysteries of God to His believers. And my friends, as New Testament believers, we become, by the Word of God and the Holy Spirit, initiates and stewards Of God's mysteries, to declare them, to embrace them as revealed. Not necessarily as understood, but as revealed. The Word of God says it, I believe it, that settles it. So we're stewards of those mysteries. And there's coming a day when even the lost who don't understand now will see the answer to all of their mocking questions. And that answer is in the one, the only one who's worthy to open the book, the Lamb, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, Jesus the Christ, Yeshua HaMashiach. Praise God. So look into that word mystery uh, while I'm away, and that will be an interesting thing for you to study and meditate upon in your personal time with the Lord. Does anyone have any questions? I'm doing my best here. I don't proclaim to have all the answers. Maybe some of the finer points that I've discussed this morning you might disagree with. That's fine. We can talk about it. But what we don't disagree about is Jesus is King. Jesus is coming again. And for those who follow Him, eternal life. For those that reject Him, eternal damnation. And that message is important enough that we ought to, as stewards of it, go forth and declare it.